It was August 1st, 2005. I finally convinced my wife to go to the hospital. She wanted to do most of her labor, her first labor at home, but it was quickly turning from having labor at home to having a baby at home. And I wasn't ready to deliver a baby at 28 years old. Uh, I don't remember how many hours of labor we had, but I do remember when Orion was born, what a happy moment that was for us. We had a son. Same for all my kids. When, when you have children, your world changes. It's, a, it's an absolute joyful love. If you don't have kids, uh, you should know, just know that your parents had that kind of love when they held you for the first time. If you can imagine that kind of love that a parent has for their child, then you, can, you soon begin to get a small glimpse of the eternal love that God the Father has always had for God the Son. An eternal love that was manifested at his baptism that Jason just read for us. And if you begin to glimpse that, you begin to glimpse the purpose of Jesus coming into the world was to manifest that love to you and to me. The, the perfect love he had for the son came, was manifested, was made known through Jesus in time and space right here before your eyes as you read it on the pages of the Bible. True history. Here he is. The ancient of days has come into the world. And Luke, who is the, the author of Luke Acts, that is, is one book with two parts. He, he, if you remember in chapter one, he began to write an orderly account of the life, the death, and the resurrection of, and ascension of Jesus to a man named Theophilus. So that he might know, so that Theophilus... Or whoever's reading, whoever's listening, like you and like me, might know with certainty that these events were both true and good for us. You might know with certainty of the things that you have learned. A certainty isn't a mathematical certainty, but it's a, it's a, it's a certainty nonetheless, a historical certainty, a certainty of a relational certainty that God has done something through this man, Jesus Christ. Now, in the first three chapters that we have been through, in the account of Jesus and his cousin, we think they were cousins, John the Baptist, began with their birth, their parallel, their, their birth. John is approximately six months older than Jesus. And they, uh, we see Luke giving an account beginning in, ut- in utero all the way up until their ministry. And that's where we find Jesus, this morning, we find an account of the beginning of his ministry at 30 years old. And John the Baptist, from the outside, both of these men, John the Baptist and Jesus, are unlikely candidates to be both the greatest Old Testament prophet and the Messiah of God. And John begins his account And now we're on into Jesus' life. He's about 30 years old. 
And one thing Luke wants Theophilus to be certain of is that it is Jesus who is making all things right. He's making the way back to God. Remember, John the Baptist came. He's preparing the way of the Lord. He's the Old Testament prophet that's preparing the way of the Lord. And then a sign of that was his baptism of forgiveness of sins. And the baptism meant repentance. You were, you were to repent of your sins and turn to Christ. And it was actually Christ who was paving the way, making this new way for humans, for human, sinful humanity to get back to God. Jesus was coming on the scene and John the Baptist was preparing, his, preparing the way of the Lord. And, and the message of this book is that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. And he's bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. We've said it, Daryl Bach said it so well. Jesus is the Lord of all, so the gospel can go to all. Luke is writing this account of universal good news. And this good news is that God manifested his love to the world in Jesus, his son and servant. And if we're going to experience this love and walk in the way of the Lord, find your path back to God, we're going to have to see three things. The role of God's son in Jesus' baptism, the baptism of Jesus, the role of God's son, the rule of God's salvation, and how it applies to God's children. The role of God's son, the rule of God's salvation, how it applies to God's children. And that's the outline, the simple outline we're just going to hang our thoughts on as we work through this. And we see uh, immediately that the way of the Lord for Jesus, his ministry begins here at his baptism. And, and, And really, we probably should take the baptism, the genealogy, and the temptation of Christ all together as we read. But we're going to do it in, in two sermons. Jesus is beginning his ministry here. The role of God's son in the baptism of Jesus. When, when we come to the baptism of Jesus, we have all kinds of questions. Especially because it's John who's baptizing him. And uh, it, it's interesting because where Luke places the baptism of Jesus actually happens... He, he, he puts it after John is in prison. And we have to ask why he does that. Why is, why is Jesus even baptized? What's the whole point of Jesus' baptism? John came baptizing for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. But, but Luke is presenting Jesus as one without sin. So why is Jesus getting baptized if he's sinless? Now that's a good question. And it's something that the book of Matthew helps us answer. However, I think as careful readers, we want to ask the question, why does Luke place Jesus' baptism right here? Understanding that that Luke, the author, an inspired author of, of the scripture, has a purpose for putting the baptism right here. Right here, you see that it doesn't even name John as the baptizer. John, essentially, in verses 21 and 22, Luke is removing John from the scene. And all we, all, the only thing that we see is Jesus, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And we hear a voice from heaven. Why did Luke place the baptism here? He's, he's not saying it happened chronologically here after John was in prison. No, he's, say, he's simply putting it here to emphasize that John's 
John's work here in Luke was to prepare the way of the Lord. That way has, of the Lord has been prepared, and now we see Jesus and, and hear God the Father and see the Spirit descending on him like a dove. What was the way of the Lord? Repent and bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. His, his way is that the coming one will baptize. He will cleanse. He will purify. And he will immerse his people in the spirit of God. God will dwell with his people by his spirit. That is the work Jesus has come to do. And the one who came to bring people back to God through baptizing in the spirit now gets baptized. But who is he? Who is this one? His name is Jesus. And we read in verse 21, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. This is our first hint that his baptism is not for himself, but as a way to identify with others, as a way to identify with God's people. He's he's doing something different in the world. Something new is happening through this this one. This new work of God is coming and is coming to the ends of the earth. God's people have passed through waters before. If you've read the Bible, you you will remember a memorable time of this. God's people uh, were slaves in Egypt. And God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He redeemed his people and he called them by name. And he was with them through the waters as they passed through the waters. He was with them in a pillar of cloud by day and, a, and fire by night. He was before them and behind them. And now God is passing through the waters for them again. Identifying with his people. You may ask, what do you mean God is doing this? Friends, Jesus is not just identifying with the world. He he is fulfilling a particular role as God's son. God, God himself has come down and taken on human flesh. In order to identify with humanity and bring them back to God, he now enters the waters of baptism, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. And we see there as Jesus was praying, In Luke 3, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God, Jesus, is fulfilling the role of God's son. And we have to, when we read the Bible, we have to hold the Bible together as one story. It's 66 books telling one story about a God who's come to redeem a people and dwell with them in a place. It's basically the story of the Bible. He, God created everything. Adam and Eve sinned and Adam plunged the human race into sin. And ever since then, we've been sinning in thought, word, and deed from from time immemorial. God made Adam to be a son, a, a representative of God's people, but Adam failed. And this is a theme running throughout the story of the Bible. 
Adam is God's son. He was given this earth to be a prophet, priest, and king. He was supposed to be a prophet, telling God's story to God's people. And he's supposed to be a priest representing God's people to God. And he's supposed to be a king. He was to have rule over creation by speaking and following the word of God. He was a priest by relating man to God. And he was a king in protecting and providing and helping mankind on and the earth to flourish. Adam, the lowercase son of God, failed in every one of those responsibilities. He failed in every one of them and plunged us into sin when he listened to the serpent through his wife and disobeyed God's word. And humanity sits and wonders what will happen to our race. What will happen to the race of man? And then God, through a series of promises, he makes a nation for himself through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now the nation Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob are considered to be this nation, this new son of God that will, that will, that will bring the rule of God back to the earth. That's, that's what a lot of people thought. And God's son, Israel, was given the privilege of bringing the good news of God's redeeming love to all the nations. They kept that love for themselves, or so they thought. They didn't want to share it with other people unless those people became just like them. Following the rules and getting circumcised and being Jewish people. But their whole identity as a nation was to show forth the love of God and displaying it. The son of God. God loves his son Israel and Israel fails in their role of prophet, priest and king. God even gave them particular prophet, priests and kings throughout their History as a nation. God even demonstrated this threefold office priest, prophet, priest, and king in, in the national religious structure. You think of King David and King Solomon, you think of the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, and you think of the priests, Levi. They're all meant to show that how God wants to relate to his people. They had prophets telling them to return to God, priests who ministered the sacrifices so they could return to God. And they had kings rule over them so that they would flourish in God's place as God's people. But Israel and every one of the prophets, every one of the priests, every one of the kings failed. They failed to represent God to man and man to God, either through their sin or through their death. And then we see Jesus enter stage left onto the scene of redemptive history. And we see him praying as he is baptized, maybe even praying for the empowerment and the presence of the spirit to, for, to fulfill God's work, to fulfill his ministry as the son of God. Adam failed. Israel failed. Here's the true son of God entering the waters of baptism for all of his sons and daughters. And most of the time, we, what do you think of when you hear the term son of God? You probably think, oh, that means that he is God, that, that this is a proof that he is God. It, and that is true, partly. 
But there's so much more to this. He was fulfilling the role of the son throughout scripture. Say, Adam failed, Israel failed. We fail in our duties as prophet, priests, and kings on this earth. But Jesus never did. And he enters identifying with his people as both God and the son of God. The way of the Lord was for Jesus to enter the waters of baptism and identify with you. And don't you need that, friend? We may blame Adam and Eve for sin being in the world, but what about the sins that we have committed? The failures in thought, word, and deed that that we have wreaked havoc on this world ourselves. How, how How could there ever be a way back to God when we have sinned against an eternal being, when we have sinned against an eternally good and, and holy and just God, the Messiah, the anointed one of God would bring salvation to his people, the son of God. And we see him here being verified and, and validated in his life as as presented in Luke and, and the gospels verify and validate that he was the perfect son of God. And friends, you have before you a, a pictures in words of the, of the Trinity, the eternal Trinity, verifying and validating God's work through Jesus Christ in the presence at his baptism, his and the father's approving words. The father's words from heaven called the mind uh, the Old Testament word about the son and the servant of God. This this crucial role that Jesus plays bringing salvation to his people. Those words, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased are the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and prophecies. Psalm 2 7 is a psalm about the king of kings. Uh, in Psalm 2, 7, it says, I, I tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I didn't, begotten, not made. He, today, is, this is an enthronement psalm at Jesus' baptism. God was giving approval of the kingdom Jesus was bringing at us. He was the true king, the true son of God. He was not only the son, he was... Also, the servant, the, the way he would bring the kingdom was to be God's son, to, to fulfill Adam's role. He would be the last Adam. And as Jason read for us, the, the, the last part of the genealogy, we're reminded of, of how Jesus identifies with true humanity. So as we said before, the baptism, genealogy and temptation are to be read together as having one main point. And that is that God is identifying as the true son. And Jesus is identifying with his people as the last Adam. So now what we're going to do is to take every name of the genealogy and show its significance. I'm just kidding. (laughs) We're not going to do that. But we are going to just talk about the genealogy quickly, okay? Uh, Genealogies in the Bible may seem boring and something to skip in your Bible reading, but they have real significance as we, as we look through them and maybe compare genealogies with genealogies. What, what do they mean? Um, the genealogy of Jesus, we find one genealogy in, in Matthew, 
It's at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. He, he gives a genealogy. And, and this is the, the other genealogy uh, uh, given of Jesus. And, and this is in the book of Luke here in chapter 2. The, the hard part about this is Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy differ. And, and Luke was trying to give certainty to Theophilus about the things that he had learned. So why can you have certainty that the Bible is, is not contradictory? For instance, Matthew has Joseph's father as Jacob and Luke has Joseph's father as Heli. So what's the deal with that? And some people have, have tried to come up with a solution to this because they have a high view of the Bible. And some say um, that Matthew's genealogy was Joseph's genealogy and, and, Mary's gene, and, and Luke's genealogy was Mary's genealogy. And, and that's how they have tried to make them fit together. And most scholars and commentators think that's probably unlikely. It's a, it's a good effort, but it's probably not the case. Mostly because... Mary's not even mentioned in the genealogy at all. Why was Jesus the son of Joseph, supposed to be the son of Joseph? The son of Heli? Uh, I think a more likely uh, resolve to what is an apparent contradiction is, is that one line, Matthew's line, is the line of, of, of his kingship, the, the, the kingly heir is sort of traced down. And we see Matthew gives a, 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 a symmetrical genealogy as he gives his genealogy. And, and Luke simply lists the, the, the men uh, that are related to Joseph biologically. Now, that doesn't answer the question, why the different names? Why Heli and one Jacob? And... and and, and one thing that may solve it is the fact of the leveret marriage. In, in Leviticus 25, God gave the Israelite people, he gave them a command that if a husband dies and, and the wife is still living, that the brother of that husband was to, to, to go and provide children for, for that family. So that line could continue. And it's likely that something like that has happened. Or some sort of adoption has, has happened in the life of Joseph. And in fact, Joseph himself is the adoptive father of Jesus. Notice how the unlikely, like an adoptive father, is able to end up in the line of Jesus. This is the gospel that goes to the, the most unlikely, the most insignificant, like a carpenter who had a, who was engaged to a girl who said she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And here he is by faith, he's adopting the Son of God into his family, caring for the Son of God, just as his own son. And Jesus honors Joseph as his adoptive father. And Luke honors this this relationship. And it is through Joseph, it's through the adoptive line of Joseph that Jesus finds his lineage in the kingship of David. All the way back to Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of God. That is a powerful point about how the gospel is coming to a weak and helpless humanity. Only through a plan of God that, that 
goes through the ages and comes down to weak and, and helpless people like you and me. You know, there's some of the differences of Matthew's and, and, and Luke's genealogy. Matthew begins with the gospel, his gospel with the genealogy, thereby establishing the immediate connection with the Old Testament and with Israel. Why? Because Matthew was, was writing to a, a Jewish people. He was a, writing to a Jewish audience, and they would, they would have needed to understand that Jesus had this heritage. Luke waits till this significant part of the ministry of John the Baptist is completed, and Jesus stands alone as the designated Son of God. He, he is the Son of God that traces all the way back to the Son of Abraham, the Son of Adam. The Son of God. Jesus is identifying, we think probably, the significance of Luke's genealogy is that Jesus is a member of the human race. And so, a son of Adam. The contrast of Jesus to the first Adam, the obedient second Adam. And even though it's not explicit in Luke, it's implicit that here he comes, the son of Adam, identifying with sinful people like you and like me. This is the Son of God. The role of God's Son in His baptism is to manifest God's love to the world through Jesus, the Son of God. And secondly, the, the rule of God's salvation. The way He would bring the kingdom was through being a suffering Servant. As the Son of God, Jesus not, is not only the king who bring, is bringing a kingdom. He is a servant who is suffering. This phrase uh, that God the Father speaks, my beloved Son, recalls to mind not only Psalm 2, 7, that he's the king, but Isaiah 42, 1, that he is the servant. Behold, my servant, who I, I uphold. My chosen, in whom my soul delights, beloved son. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, dotted through the book of Isaiah are four songs. Four, they're called the servant songs. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9 is the first of the servant songs. And they describe not only the servant of God who brings salvation, but they describe the way the servant is going to bring salvation to the nations. Most people, when Isaiah was written, thought that it only applied to Israel, the son of God. But now Jesus, being called the beloved son of God, we see the fulfillment of Isaiah 42 one through nine, the servant song that Jesus is the suffering servant who is, who is not only coming to identify as the son of God, he's in, to identify with God's people, he's coming to suffer with and for God's people. We saw John experience suffering for the reproof of Herod and Herodias. But as if to say John is not the suffering servant, God removes him from the narrative, puts him in prison, and alone stands Jesus. So while John and, and other Christians like you and I might suffer, it is Jesus, the Son of God, who is the true suffering servant. Isaiah 42 tells us 
hundreds of years before Jesus comes, Jesus comes on the scene that the true Son of God will have God's Spirit put upon him and he will be my servant. Friends, the, the servant and this servant and this son is absolutely unique. He's identifying with us in our weaknesses and in our, in our, in our sin he, as not a sinner, but he's identifying with us. But there's no one like him. Even in Adam's role as the son of God, he was not like Jesus. He was a pointer to Jesus. Jesus never sinned. And because Jesus is altogether lovely and altogether excellent, Jesus is the far better Adam who God always had in mind. He's the better Adam. He's the better Israel friend and fellow sinner. This is not just good information. God wants us to see Jesus as this unique son and servant of God and trust him. Oh, Theophilus. I want you to know with certainty that you can trust this Jesus. And whatever you're going through right, right now, you can trust. You can put your full weight on the son and suffering servant. You have a big decision to make. You can trust him. You have a big sin. That you don't know if he can forgive. You can trust him. You are suffering. You can trust him. When I uh, went through my dark night of the soul last year. I, listen, I, I'm not special in this. Lots of people go through dark nights of the soul. You may be in one now. But I was in one last year. And one of the voices in my head was how bad, that I, how bad I was, how, how much of a failure I was as a, uh, as a husband and as a father and as a pastor. But the one person and the one voice that never left me, never would forsake me, was Jesus. He was my closest friend during that time. And his, his voice was faint at times, and sometimes it was drowned out by the dark thoughts of a, of a dark soul. But he was my closest friend. I remember one dark moment all alone at my kitchen table lunch one afternoon. I was all alone, sobbing. If you're all alone at your kitchen table sobbing, something is wrong <laughs> and you need to get help. OK, you, you need to talk to a friend. You need to maybe a, you need to talk to a counselor. I don't know, but something's not right. OK, just to let you know, I'm not normalizing this. Something is going on in your soul. And I cried out. Against the lies that were being spoken up either by myself or the, the enemy and I said, no, that is a lie. God loves me in Christ. God really loves me. And friend, God loves you too. And I, I don't know if you're a Christian or not a Christian, but in, in this text, we see the son of God and the suffering servant of God 
coming for you. Telling you that he has fulfilled the obedience that you failed to fulfill. He obeyed in every aspect where we have failed, where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where Doug failed. This is the active obedience of Jesus. His obedience and righteousness is a part of our salvation. Did you, do you believe that? Why didn't Jesus come to the earth as a 33-year-old man, die for our sins, and go back to heaven? Because all righteousness had to be fulfilled. He had to actively live out the law as a human being in our place. Because it wasn't just enough to die for our sins. The active, the righteousness of Christ had, be, had to be imputed to us. So that when God looks at us, it looks as it is to him as if we actually fulfilled the law. This is the active righteousness, the active obedience of Christ is imputed to you. Jesus became sin who knew no sin. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become what? The righteousness of God. And the son of God and the servant of the Lord did that. It was imputed to us. It's it's imputed to our account. Your account might be overdrawn in the bank. And and wouldn't it be nice for someone to impute their money to you? Jesus has imputed his righteousness to you. In his perfect life, he, he lived in your place. That's why it's not enough for you to obey the rules to get back to God. We can never get back to God in this way. Only the true son of God and servant of the Lord could do this. And his natural inclination in all of this was to pray. That's what we see throughout the life of Jesus. And I would challenge you this week to look through the life of Jesus and see every time he prayed. It's about six or seven Maybe eight times that he prays. When he prays, something happens. Things start to happen. And as the son of God and servant of the Lord, this is how Jesus operated. Starting with his baptism. I'm sure before that, we just don't have record of it before that Jesus is praying. Did you notice that? He's standing in the waters and he prays. We don't have the words of Jesus in verse 21, but we can imagine that he's praying for the spirit to empower him for the ministry that God is calling him to. This is a, this is, this is a natural activity between father and son. The son to pour out his heart to his father. Ask his father for help. For the son to desire the good favor of the father and for the Father to give it. That's what prayer is, friends. Pouring out your heart to God. And Jesus had this perfect relationship with his Father. It was was as natural as breathing to him, and it should be to us as well. Now, none of us have a Father like Jesus had. 
None of us have earthly father like Jesus had as his heavenly father. Our earthly fathers can be good examples of this and bad examples of this. And sometimes we're so complicated we can be good and bad examples at the same time. And some of us fathers, or we have had fathers that are aloof or withdrawn from us. And that's really, that's really jaded our view of prayer to God because our father has just is, has been withdrawn. And all, all we know is a father who's withdrawn, so maybe God's like that too. And some of us have had angry fathers that when, they're, when, when we ask them for something, they blow up at us and yell at us. Some of us have had passive fathers. Some of us have had fathers that talk too much and never let their kids get a word in. But friends, God the Father is never any of those things. He is the best father. He hears you when you pray, even though millions of people are praying at the same time. He loves you. In Christ, he wants to answer your prayer. And maybe for you, the silence of your dad has, has made you think that the, that the silence of God is the same thing. God the Father is, is never that way. He has revealed everything you need to know about himself in his world and his word. And he's never withdrawn, even when it feels like he is. Even when it feels like the heavens are brass or there's a a wall blocking him, he's never aloof. If you're in Christ, you are his child. He's not angry with you. Even Even if he's disciplining you, he's not angry with you. He's not withdrawn. He's there. And Jesus, the Son of God, is praying in one sense for us and also giving us an example of how to relate to God. How does this apply to you? Now, we'll not take the concluding minutes to guilt you into a prayer life, but I want you to know how good it is to pray to God. No matter what form it takes, maybe it's throughout your day, but I want to encourage you to set aside some specific time in your life to be praying. So like Martin Luther said, I cannot begin a day without two hours of prayer. Maybe you want to start there. But if you're like me and you start there, uh, you won't even last 15 minutes, right? I, I won't even last 15 minutes. But maybe, maybe you try 15 minutes tomorrow morning, Monday morning, right? You, 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 you wake up and maybe you won't even get 15 minutes But I want to encourage you, take a psalm, take the words of Jesus, take the words of the Apostle Paul and pray them back to God and pray them for one another in this church and for your family. Before you know it, 15 minutes will pass by. And if you take 15 minutes the rest of this year and you do 15 minutes a day, you will have prayed 114 hours. You can check my math, but I, I think that's right. Which is which is more than you probably prayed last year, probably more than I prayed last year in terms of a dedicated time of prayer. I'm, re- I'm reading the disciplines of a godly man right now and I finished the chapter on prayer and, and, and one of the tools he suggested using, Tim Challies said 
the app Prayer Mate changed his prayer life. Maybe you use something like that and, 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 and put in a prayer list that you can, you can work through for, for your family, for yourself, for your family, for your church, for evangelism in the world. God is your father. If you have trusted in him and repented of your sins, he wants to hear you, dear friend. You, you will explore the, the, you will know and explore the greatness and the, the excellencies of Christ, even as you suffer, as you see him as your only friend, your only hope in life and death. Friend, he is the true son of God. And he is the suffering servant who came into this world to manifest his love for you in Jesus. Will you believe him? Will you turn to him in prayer because it's one of the ways he manifests his love to you? Now we're gonna, I'm gonna give you, as we conclude, I'm gonna give you a few moments of, of quiet prayer. And I, I don't know how the Holy Spirit is working in your life right now. It may be through confession of sin and, and we can confess our sins to God and know that he's faithful and just to forgive them. And I encourage you before we take communion to examine yourself. But I'm gonna give you a few moments of quiet to respond to God in whatever way he's working in your life and then I'll conclude with a prayer, assurance of pardon and we'll take communion together. Take a few moments.